We are going to look at Mark chapter 11 this morning. Mark chapter 11. Spend a few more weeks in Mark and then we will focus on something else for the weeks leading up to Easter. Mark chapter 11. Uh, In our study of Mark's gospel, we are entering the last week of Jesus' life. The gospels place significant emphasis on the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew devotes a quarter of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Mark devotes a third of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Luke devotes a fifth of his gospel to this last week of Jesus' life. And John devotes nearly half of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, If my memory and math serves me correctly, uh, there are 89 chapters altogether uh, in the Gospels, and 30 of those 89 chapters are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And so if we, we consider that Jesus lived for roughly 30 to 33 years on this earth, and He engaged in public ministry for three years, uh, then a, a third, a third of what's written about him is devoted really to this one week of all of that. It's quite noteworthy. If that tells us anything, uh, it is that the events of this last week of Jesus' life, and especially the events on that Good Friday when he suffered on the cross, are of supreme importance in our understanding of Jesus. This final week of Jesus' life, it begins with what's known as the triumphal entry. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's what we read about in our text this morning. Mark 11, beginning at verse 1, hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God, read for you now. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together this morning. Lord God, you give the healing and grace. Our hearts always hunger for. This morning we are hungry, again, for healing and grace. And we pray 
We pray that you would give it. For Jesus' sake, amen. People of God, on two occasions, two occasions in the Old Testament, we read prophecies which connect the future messianic king of Israel with a donkey and its colt. The first one is in Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. We actually looked at this text during the Christmas season. Jacob here in Genesis 49 is on his deathbed, and he calls his sons to him, and he proceeds to tell his sons one by one what is going to happen to them and their descendants in the days to come. And in verses 10 and 11 of Genesis 49, Jacob is speaking specifically to his son Judah, and this is what he says to Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. So, Jacob there says that, that to the house of Judah belongs the throne in Israel. He says, he says that from Judah will come kings. But more than that, from Judah will, will come a, a specific individual who is the king. Not just king over Israel, but, but king over all the nations. From Judah will come the king of kings. That's what Jacob says there. It's, it's a prophecy of the Messiah. Notice what else Jacob says there. He says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. We talked about that at Christmas time. It might seem a bit cryptic this morning, but just, just notice that in Genesis 49 already, there is a connection between the future messianic king of Israel and a donkey and its colt. The second place we see this connection is in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is writing to the exiles who have returned to Jerusalem and have begun rebuilding the temple after it was destroyed. This is about 500 years before Jesus would be born. This is what the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah is simply doing what prophets do. He's, he's looking into the future, and he's seeing the coming of Israel's king, uh, the coming of Israel's savior, and he, he tells us how he's coming. He's coming gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So two times... Two times in the Old Testament, we read prophecies which connect the future messianic king of Israel to a donkey and its colt. And make no mistake, beloved, these two prophecies lie under really everything that happens. In Mark chapter 11, 1 through, uh, Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11, the scene is set in verse 1. Here we read that Jesus and his disciples, and it seems that large crowd of pilgrims, we read about them earlier in verse 46, that large crowd of pilgrims is still with Jesus and his disciples. They're making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, in traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, 
as Jesus is doing here, Bethany and Bethphage uh, are the last towns a person would have went through before entering into Jerusalem from the east. Bethany is a town just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. It is situated on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and it was here in Bethany that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead sometime earlier. Bethphage wasn't so much a town as it was a a burg or a hamlet uh, situated right on the edge of Jerusalem. I read somewhere this week, I tried to find it back, I couldn't, but I read somewhere I think that it, that it even fell under the jurisdiction of Jerusalem, right? So it wasn't really a town, it was more of just kind of a, kind of a hamlet. And this is where Jesus and his disciples and the large crowd of people have now come to. They are, they are coming up on Jerusalem and from the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, they would, have, they would have overlooked the city of Jerusalem. Having set the scene for us, Mark then tells us what happens beginning at verse 1b. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Now, Matthew, all four gospel writers tell us about this, this story here, the triumphal entry. Matthew explicitly tells us that when Jesus gave these instructions, he gave them to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. And then Matthew goes on to quote Zechariah 9.9, that passage we read earlier. Mark does not do that here, obviously. You can see he makes no mention of the prophecy beforehand, and that's probably because Mark is writing to Gentiles and Matthew is writing to Jews. And in writing to the Jews, Matthew took great pains to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That was not quite as necessary for Mark writing to Gentiles, but nevertheless... Mark 2, in providing us these details as he does, Mark is making it clear that Jesus here is intentionally, consciously fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. If we go back to Genesis 49, you'll see that the word there which links the donkey and its colt to the Messiah is the word tethered in the NIV. That word could also be translated tied. Look how many times Mark uses the word tied and untied just in our passage. Mark 11, he uses it twice in verse 2. He uses it twice in verse 4. He uses it once in verse 5. All this talk of tying and untying, right? You, when you first read it, like, I get it, Mark. He's tying it. There's a tied up cold and he's untying it. And it's just over and over again, tied, untied, tied, untied. Mark is doing that on purpose. He wants us to hear echoes of Genesis 49 and of the donkey and its colt, which were tied in the coming kingdom of the Messiah. There is another Old Testament detail here. This colt is to be one that no one has ever ridden. Uh, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 6, it was only cows that had never been yoked, which were to pull uh, the cart that carried the ark of the Lord. 
And in Deuteronomy 21, Numbers 19, we see that animals which were to be devoted to sacred purposes in Israel, they were to be animals that were never used for ordinary things. So it was with this, this colt and carrying the Lord Jesus Christ. This colt is being used for a sacred purpose. Anyway, Jesus here, he's, he's intentionally fulfilling prophecy. He's making sure that he enters Jerusalem in the exact manner the prophets of old said he would. In another place, Matthew uh, chapter 6, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And here we see him doing just that. He's fulfilling what the prophets have said. We read in verse 4, They, that is the disciples, went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. Boys and girls, let me ask you, how do you think Jesus knew that this colt would be tied up at this doorway? What do you think? Do you think, do you think Jesus made arrangements beforehand? Jesus, Jesus knew people in Bethany, right? Mary, Martha, Lazarus, those, those were his friends. He's been here before. The people, he had a name in this town. He raised a dead man. Do you think Jesus made arrangements before to have this colt tied up right in this spot? Or, or could it be that we're seeing something of Christ's sovereignty and foreknowledge and power in all of this? Boys and girls, what do you think? Any, any guesses? You don't have to guess, but we don't really know. You can think about it yourself. We don't know. The, gospel, the Gospels leave us to wonder. Perhaps a better question to ask is this. What do you think these two disciples thought of this assignment? I mean, remember Jesus' disciples. We've been hanging out with them for a few weeks. Jesus' disciples wanted to be great in the kingdom, Remember? They wanted high places and recognition in the kingdom. If this were today, they, were, they, they wanted to preach to massive crowds, and they wanted to see their names printed in church bulletins and plastered on church signs as people rode by. They wanted, they wanted people to come up and you know, shake their hand after a sermon and say, Pastor, what a blessing you are. And yet here Jesus calls two of them, to the menial task of donkey fetching. It's awesome, isn't it? We're not even told their names. Was this James and John? Was this Peter? Some think it probably was Peter because Peter was sort of Mark's eyewitness. Peter was relaying his story to Mark, and there's a lot of detail here. We don't know who it was. We're not told their names, and why? Because let's be honest. Donkey fetchers in God's kingdom usually are the people who remain nameless. But here's the point. Sometimes Jesus calls us to be donkey fetchers. And if Jesus calls you to fetch a donkey, by all means, you better be ready to fetch a donkey. You're not above fetching a donkey. I'm not above fetching a donkey. If Jesus calls you to, to fetch a donkey and to do some menial, mundane task in his name that no one's going to give you any praise or credit or glory for, that you're going to remain nameless for, you better be ready to fetch that donkey. And fetch that donkey to the glory of God, right? That's what these disciples did. Mark tells us that as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. 
Luke tells us that the people questioning the disciples here are the, are the owners of the colt. And that makes sense, right? They'd, what are you doing with our colt? Are you stealing our colt? Uh, police, this guy's stealing. Stop on time. You guys are dead this morning. No, none of you are. Res- no, I'm talking to you guys now. You guys are dead. You're dead. You all are. You've been up too late last night. These guys say, what are you doing untying our colt? And they answer as the Lord told them. The Lord, the Lord needs it, and uh, they let them go. They let, they let their disciples take the colt. And whoever these people are, they set a wonderful example for us, don't they? I mean, the, the, they did not withhold their possession from the Lord. The Lord needed what they had, they gave. And you know, maybe when there's, when there's a need before us, God in his providence puts a need before us. We have means to meet that need. Maybe we do well to think about our possessions in a similar light, right? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. We read in verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And taking his seat on the colt, the foal of a donkey, Jesus, Jesus is making it clear. He is the Messiah. He is the great descendant of Judah to whom the scepter would ultimately come. He is is the coming king that the prophet Zechariah spoke about. In taking his seat on the donkey, Jesus is saying, I am him. Okay, this whole scene has profound, unmistakable, messianic significance. The first century Jew would not have missed it. And they did not miss this. That's obvious from the reaction of the people. It's obvious in Luke's gospel where the Pharisees who were schooled in the, in the word of the Lord, very familiar with the Old Testament, they're very annoyed by all of this. They tell the people to stop celebrating all of this. The Pharisees get it. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Earlier in the gospels, we saw Jesus conceal his identity, didn't we? Don't go tell anybody about what you've seen or heard. That's what he said. Here, here, in taking his seat on the colt, we see Jesus reveal his identity. Here he says, I am the king whom the prophet spoke about. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. Now, the people in this caravan for Jerusalem, for the Passover, they they get it, but they only sort of get it, okay? They only sort of get it. Look at verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the field. This is, this is really a king's welcome that they give to Jesus here. In 2 Kings 9 verse 12, we read that after, excuse me, after the anointing of Jehu as king of Israel, the people hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. We might say that that's the way they rolled out the red carpet in the ancient world. This is, this is a king's welcome. There are other examples from the time period of famous people um, being hailed with palm branches, which is, again, what's happening to Jesus here. This is, this is, a, compl- this is a king's welcome. The, the people here in this caravan, they understand something of what's going on. This isn't completely lost on them. Yet, as I said, they, they only sort of get it, okay? They only sort of get it. We read in verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
You can picture the scene. Jesus is riding down this, the, the road on a colt. There's people in front of him on the way to Jerusalem. There's people behind him on the way to Jerusalem. And, and these pilgrims, they're, they're singing. And what they're singing exactly here are, are words from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is one of six Hallel Psalms. Hallel is just short for Hallelujah. These Hallel Psalms were were psalms that the Israelites would sing as they approached Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts. We might say that, that as Jerusalem came into view, which for these pilgrims would have been at the top of the Mount of Olives, they crest the Mount of Olives, they can see the city. These Hallel Psalms would have been on their lips. These were the songs that the pilgrims would have sung. Psalm 113 to 118, those are, the, those are the Hallel Psalms. This is one of them. Now the word Hosanna simply means save us or save now or save I pray. And that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, again it's from Psalm 118, 26, but it, it came to be a regular greeting that the pilgrims would use to address each other as they came near Jerusalem. If you, if you were a pilgrim en route to Jerusalem, you would have walked into the city, someone would have been there to greet you. They would have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It turned out to be a greeting bestowed on pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. So this song, this song that people are singing here, this Hosanna song, it's not unique These are songs they would always sing as they approached Jerusalem for one of the great feasts. If this was unique, if they were crying out Hosanna for the first time ever to this Jesus fella, the Romans would have came and arrested him right on the spot. But to the Romans, this was was nothing unique, nothing peculiar. Now we know that as Jesus approaches riding on a donkey, these words find their ultimate fulfillment, don't they? Jesus is the one who will save. He is the one to whom we can truly cry Hosanna. And Jesus is the one who's come in the name of the Lord. That can be said about him more than anybody else. In Jesus, these words do find their ultimate fulfillment. But it seems the people people didn't get it. The people did not quite understand. Look at verse 10. There they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That is is not part of Psalm 118. Nor is that a phrase we see anywhere else in Scripture. Jesus talked about being the son of David and he talked about the kingdom of God. But but this whole phrase, the coming kingdom of our father David, it's, it's unique to this episode. And most commentators note that this expression likely betrays these people's hope for national restoration. Remember, Israel at this time is under the control of the Romans. They are occupied by the Romans. If you're familiar with maybe the history of your ancestors living in the Netherlands, Aaron's grandma lived in the Netherlands during World War II. The Netherlands were occupied by the Germans. That's kind of what life in Israel was like at this time. The people of Israel were occupied by the Romans, and the Israelites longed to see the Romans driven out, and they longed to see the nation of Israel restored to a place of prominence and to a place of glory, just as it was in the days of David. They thought the Messiah was going to be the one who came and brought about this restoration. 
That's why the disciples keep talking about their places in Jesus' kingdom. It's why in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples say, Teacher, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? These people keep thinking that the Messiah Jesus is going to establish this earthly geopolitical kingdom in Israel. So the people here, they they recognize Jesus as their king, but they misunderstand the type of king he is. And they misunderstand the type of kingdom he's going to bring. They're honoring him as this this conquering king who's going to establish a literal, physical kingdom. Not as a suffering king who's going to establish a spiritual kingdom. Put it this way, when they shout Hosanna, they're not thinking save us from our sins. They're thinking save us from the Romans. They don't get that this king's crown will be made of thorns, that his reign will begin from a cross. They don't, they don't understand that his method of conquest will be the gospel of God's grace and mercy for sinners, and that rather than putting his enemies to death, he's going to die in their place. They don't get that. Now, these people should have probably known better. One reason they should have known better is because it is there in the Old Testament, You can see it, right? Yes, we read about the king who is coming in Zechariah 9. We also read about the one whom they have pierced a few chapters later. We read about about the prophecy to Judah. We also have Isaiah 53. He was crushed for their iniquities, right? They should have seen it because the Old Testament speaks about it. More than that, Jesus here is is on the colt of a donkey. And a donkey was an animal of humility and peace. A horse, a horse was an animal of power and war. Had Jesus ridden into Jerusalem on a a horse here, that would have been a declaration of war. And the Romans would have arrested him on the spot. More than that, come on, this, this is a borrowed donkey that Jesus is riding. What kind of king needs to borrow a donkey? Only a king who, for the sake of his people, has become poor. So these people, they they only kind of got it. That Jesus was a king, it was not lost on them. But the kind of king he would be, it it was. And that's why why we see people so disappointed after Jesus is put to death. You remember those two travelers on the Emmaus Road, whom Jesus kind of comes up on secretly and talks to. They're so bummed because they thought the Messiah was going to establish a kingdom, and now he's dead. This wasn't how they expected it to go. This whole scene does make me wonder, though, what kind of Jesus are you worshiping today? What kind of Jesus are you worshiping today? Perhaps you're worshiping, you know, think of some different Jesuses in our day. Perhaps you're worshiping the the Amazon Jesus. You know, you can go to him. You can get whatever you need. And it'll be on your doorstep with free two-day delivery. No doubt that's, that's the Jesus some of us are worshiping today. That Jesus who is a big cosmic vending machine, pouring out blessing upon blessing upon blessing on us. Everything we want, we go to him. He, he's a big genie in the sky, granting my wishes. Maybe you're worshiping, this one's real popular today, you're worshiping the, 
and this maybe betrays my generation, there might be a newer song or a newer artist, I'm not in tune with things, but maybe you're worshiping the Christina Aguilera Jesus, who tells you you're beautiful just the way you are. Never mind that sin in your heart and your life. Never mind your disordered sexuality, never mind your impatience, never mind your anger, never mind your laziness. This is how God made you. Embrace it. You're beautiful, no matter what they say. You woke up. Good. (laughs) Maybe you're worshiping the big brother, Jesus. I didn't have a big brother, but I did have a big cousin, so maybe I'll say my big cousin, Jesus. We were playing street hockey in the neighborhood one day, and a guy really made me mad. I don't think he did anything wrong, but he made me mad. And I was going to get my cousin, and my cousin was going to beat him up. <laughs> and we, some of us, we, we go to Jesus, and we want Jesus, literally, we want him to beat up all the people who've made our life miserable and who've ever looked cross-eyed at us in the least way. Maybe you're worshiping still another Jesus whom I haven't identified. There are more. But if so, hear me clearly this morning. If you're worshiping any Jesus other than the one who saves to the uttermost poor, needy, and condemnable sinners by his precious blood shed on the cross, if you're worshiping any other Jesus than that Jesus, you too are going to be disappointed. But it's not because Jesus is disappointing. It's because you are blind to that which you need most. Look now at verse 11. We come to verse 11, and the fanfare surrounding Jesus is over. It was short-lived. These people praising him on the road are now nowhere to be found, which I think shows us that what happened here on the road was just a spontaneous, brief, contagious expression of praise. Maybe half these people had no idea what they were even doing, but everybody else was doing it. It was kind of fun. I'm afraid it's a sort of thing that happens in many churches on Sunday morning when the praise band gets in their groove and the lights get dimmed and the smoke arises and worship becomes nothing more than a play on people's emotions. You can, you can generate emotions in worship. You can. Now we're told Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now this kind of seems at first glance like a throwaway, anticlimactic ending to the story, doesn't it? But it isn't. And to understand its significance, we need to go back to the book of Ezekiel. You don't have to go there. You can if you want, but Ezekiel chapter 11, I should have noted the verses. I think it's verses 20 to 23, somewhere in there. The prophet sees the glory of God depart from the temple and ultimately from the city of Jerusalem, which was really a display of God's judgment against his people for their sin and for their idol worship. In Ezekiel, he sees the glory of God leave the temple, and he sees the glory of God leave the city, and he looks, and he sees the glory of God go east, and he sees the glory of God rest on a mountain overlooking the city. That mountain, Ezekiel sees the glory of God rest on, that mountain is the Mount of Olives. Later on, Ezekiel tells of a day when the glory of God would return to Jerusalem and would return to the temple from the east. The way it left is the way it's going to come again. But thus far, the the people have only been waiting. Yet what happens in our text? 
Well, from the east, and even more from the Mount of Olives, from the last place the glory of God was seen comes Jesus, who himself is the radiance of God's glory. And as he walks into Jerusalem, and as he walks into the temple now, do you see what Mark is telling us? He's telling us that the long-awaited return is complete. God's glory is back. The king has returned. And yet the quietness of verse 11 tells us something else. The people are not ready. The people are not ready. And Jesus, having surveyed the goings-on in the temple this night, he's going to come back the next day. And he's going to make that clear. And if you just glance down at the following verses, the first thing he does the next morning is curse a fig tree. And that fruitless fig tree stands for the fruitless lives of his people in Jerusalem. Their religion is hollow. Their religion is dead. Their lives are bearing no fruit. And then he goes into the temple, and what does he do? He clears the temple. And he says to those in the temple, you have made my house a den of robbers. The king returns, the glory is back, and the people aren't ready. Now let me ask you something. If cursing fig trees and clearing the temple is how Jesus responds to unbelief and dead religion when he comes riding on a donkey, how do you think he'll respond to unbelief and dead religion when he comes riding in on a white horse. If this is how Jesus responds when he comes in salvation and peace, how do you think Jesus will respond when he comes in judgment to make war? If this is how he responds when he comes in humility, how will our king respond when he comes again in power? Beloved, there's a warning here to get your house in order There's a warning here to be prepared for the return of the king. I close this morning with two applications. The first is for those of us who look at our lives and realize we're not ready for the return of our king. We look at the fig tree that is our lives and we we see that that it is barren of any spiritual fruit. We look at the temple of our hearts and yep, it's a den of robbers. We are not ready for the return of King Jesus. If that's you today, you have have but one option. And it's to cry out to Jesus, Hosanna. Hosanna. Save me now. Save me, I pray. Said this to you before, I'll probably say it to you again. You cannot save yourself. You do not have the ability to turn the den of robbers within into a house of prayer. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do that within you. But he will do that. That's the good news. He will do that if you confess your sins and acknowledge your need for the salvation he alone provides. He will make you ready for the day of his coming. He is the Savior. He can save you. And so if you're not ready today, If your house is not in order today, cry out Hosanna. 
But for those of us, by God's grace, who are ready this day for Christ's coming, we are walking by God's grace and faith and repentance. We are united with Christ, and we are, we are living fruitful lives for the praise of His glory. You can, you can see that your relationship with Christ is, is manifesting itself in your life. You can see spiritual fruit. It's there, right? There's no better application than the one afforded to us by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was once asked if it were difficult for her to remain humble. Her reply was simple. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was, was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think for one moment it ever entered the head of the donkey that any of that was for him? She continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in His glory, I give Him all the praise and all the honor. Corey Ten Boom is so good. If you've never read Corey Ten Boom, read Corey Ten Boom. But that's what all Christ people should strive to be, right? The donkey upon which Christ rides in His glory. The donkey that carries him before as many people as possible and that contributes to other people crying out, Hosanna, Lord Jesus, save me. How might you be the donkey this week? Boys and girls, how might you be the donkey that, that carries the Lord Jesus through the halls at school? Moms and dads, how might you be the donkey that carries the Lord Jesus in your home? Loved ones, how might you be the donkey that carries the Lord Jesus to work or across the street to the neighbors or wherever God calls you in the days ahead? Want an application? Be the donkey. Be the donkey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise this morning that you are a king like none other. Your crown was made of thorns. Your throne was a cross. Your mode of transportation was a humble beast of burden. The method of your conquest was the gospel. Yet of all the kingdoms that have arose since, yours alone remains. And so we give you thanks and praise for calling us into your kingdom through your word and spirit. We ask that you would help us to be donkeys in the week ahead that bring you to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the Lord's greeting, and then we'll close with a song about our king. Brothers and sisters, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen.